You're listening to Guess What I Learned Today, uh, the Archon Forensics podcast. And today I had on Rob Fuller. He's a consultant with Safe Tech Environmental Consulting. Great podcast, interesting guy. I love his enthusiasm. Guys, you're going to love this podcast. Sit back, relax, and enjoy this podcast. Uh, Great time. And uh, reach out to Rob if you have any questions. Welcome, Rob, to our podcast. I understand uh, Safe Tech does a lot of work with Archon Engineering, so they've asked that you come on the podcast and tell us a little bit about yourselves. Oh, thank you very much. It's very kind of them. Um, yeah, we're an environmental consulting company. Uh, we were founded back in 2004. Um, the kind of vision from our three founders was to try and build a leader in the industry as far as quality of service for uh, environmental and health and safety consulting. So, um, Rob, what's your background? What do you... Um... I actually studied chemical engineering. Okay. Um, and so I was hired as part of the engineering department at SafeTech. Um, we deal with a lot of soil and groundwater uh, investigations and remediations. And we also deal with uh, soil and groundwater issues um, in the insurance sector um, as far as you know responding to spills and emergencies and those kind of claims so y- y- you found the right guy to talk to because i love to talk about oil spills so oh, uh, yeah my kids when they were growing up just thought that you know every dinner conversation was about an oil spill um, <laughs> because i was always telling my wife about you know these different oil spills um, you know, claims that I'd, I'd heard about or seen or talked to uh, their adjusters about. So I'm fascinated by oil spills. I got to be honest. So, but before we get into that in depth, let's talk about safe tech. And I'm sure it's divided up into sections or groups, right? Because um, it's an environmental company. So you do do air, water, ground. What do you tell me? See a little bit about the, the whole makeup of safe tech. Yeah, we, uh, I mean, our goal is to be a bit of a one-stop shop. So we've got, um, you know, a fairly extensive building condition, hazardous material kind of department. We've got occupational hygienists that do indoor air quality monitoring and uh, water testing. Um, Obviously, my department does uh, soil and groundwater things. Um, We also work with air and noise permitting uh, for places that are setting up new operations or maybe didn't realize they needed that when they were setting up their operations in the past. Um, And we have an insurance department that deals with fire damage, floods, that kind of thing, as well as the spills work that my department does. So tell me about this oil and, or sorry, air and uh, noise. I've never even thought about that or I'm. Yeah. Um, can you talk about that, or is that a different kind of unit? No, no, yeah, for sure. I, that's, I'm pretty <laughs> pretty well-versed in that. Awesome. Um, a lot of the environmental stuff that happens in Ontario stems from the Environmental Protection Act. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the requirements under the Act is that if you want to set up a factory or any kind of equipment that might put out uh, contaminants, you know, noise, smoke, dust, loud sounds, vibrations, that kind of thing. Um, you're supposed to get a report done, preferably by an engineer, uh, documenting how you're going to comply with the applicable regulations. And then you would either send that into the ministry if it's a complicated facility and they'd review it, Ministry of the Environment, or the engineer would be able to stamp off on it by themselves if it's a relatively straightforward facility. But you're usually supposed to do that before you uh, open up for business. So. 
Well, that's really interesting, I got to say, because um, I've never even thought of that as being an environmental concern as being noise. Um, oh, but yeah. but it makes sense now that you're saying it. It totally makes sense. Um, so that that that's interesting. We're gonna have to probably have you back on and just talk about noise claim or uh, noise complaints. I guess is that how it stems from, or is it a is it the actual? Do you get it as a result of somebody complaining of noise as being an environmental hazard, or is it come in as hey, listen, we're setting up this operation and we're gonna be noisy, so we have to make sure we're within the right limits or parameters. Is that um, the way the regulations are set up? Basically, anything you want to do, you're supposed to get an approval for. Um, arguably, even you know a residential fireplace, you would have to get an approval for. But then there's kind of an additional regulation that sets out exceptions for that, which is why you don't need an approval for your air conditioner or your fireplace or your stove or any of that. But if you want to do those sorts of things on a commercial basis, then you basically by default need to get an approval of some kind. Oh, interesting. Um, the ministry doesn't have the most enforcement officers, so they're not usually out banging on doors demanding to see people's paperwork. Um, but when they receive complaints from the public, um, be it disgruntled neighbors or disgruntled ex-employees, they'll often pay a company a visit and, you know, politely ask to see uh, their documentation. So we get a decent number of our clients calling us asking what exactly an environmental approval is and how they go about getting one. <laughs> So is it a dB meter? Is it just like you're just literally looking at the, the, the noise, the sound it makes? It, does it have to be within a certain um, yeah, limit, um, or is it pitch, or what is it? It's a combination of those. We, we can go out and do actual measurement. Um, we try to avoid that if we can, because it's hard to show that your measurements on any given day are going to be representative of the worst case from that facility. Mm-hmm. So I... Ideally, we'd like to get manufacturer specification, you know, lab results, that kind of thing. Okay. Which we'd then use in a model to estimate what the worst case uh, emissions of contaminants would result in around the neighborhood. Interesting. Um, one way to think about it is stuff that happens kind of at the facility and on their property, the Ministry of Labor worries about. And stuff that happens in the neighborhood around them, the Ministry of the Environment worries about. Uh, so my department deals with the Ministry of the Environment side, and the occupational hygienists deal with the Ministry of Labor side. Now, I'm, I'm going to ask you, and maybe you don't know this, but has there ever been a tort claim or a claim issued as a result of noise? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Um, so there's Section 9 of the Environmental Protection Act says you have to get an approval before you operate. Section 6, I believe, says that regardless of whether you have an approval or not, you shouldn't be a nuisance to your neighbors, essentially. I mean, among other things, you shouldn't be a nuisance to your sure. neighbors. So sometimes you'll get a facility that's had three or four consultants in. They've had all kinds of reports done. Everybody says they should be okay, but if the neighbors keep calling the ministry and complaining, they'll, you know, <laughs> they're not done yet. They gotta, they wow. gotta be able to live with their neighbors. Interesting. So yeah, it uh, it brings in regulatory liability as well as civil. Well, guys, for the people listening on this and you uh, tort adjusters, if you ever get a noise complaint claim, uh, safe tax your people. So that's interesting. That's that's really cool. I've never I'd never even thought of that. I mean, I don't handle tort claims, so um, but that's a really interesting um, type of loss that I didn't even consider. But let's talk about some stuff that you guys do in the insurance industry. And I'm not sure that, you know, you get many of those tort claims for the noise stuff, but you get oil spills, I'm sure. And you get groundwater contamination. Um, mm-hmm. 
what would you say is the most common claim you guys get out of the insurance industry in any of your streams or avenues of business? Um, we get a lot of water damage claims, um, which isn't so much my department, but we also get a fairly respectable number of you know vehicle accidents, truck fires, someone's gone off the road, you know, various things happen. Oh, okay. Um, and a, a lot of times when you have a, you know, a large vehicle that's had an accident, um, it'll damage the fuel tanks and that'll result in spill. And, uh, you know, if it's on the side of the highway or a parking lot or something like that, you wind up having to do a bit of a remediation. Now, are you strictly the consultant or do you have a remediation division as well? You know, we strictly act as the consultant. Okay. So um, you're the QPs as yeah, they say. Yeah. Indeed. There's, uh, I mean, there are some contractors that we work with on a fairly regular basis. We're familiar with them. Sure. But uh, that's, you know, we're basically an impartial third party. Excellent. Okay. Well, um, let's talk about some of those claims. Um, For sure. Uh, you, you get, um, a, you said truck claims. So when I think truck mm -hmm. claims, I think of those big saddle tanks on the sides, yep. literally letting go when they hit the rock cut and yep. uh, just causing a mess. <laughs> and um, So now... When you get those, um, can you tell me the types of remediation type of um, options that they're out there right now? Because I think it's changing, right, on a regular basis. Yeah, I mean, people are always coming up with new technologies. Um, one nice thing about a spill, or uh, an insurance claim spill, usually, for something like a truck crash, is that because it will have happened very recently, um, if we're able to get to the site quickly, there won't be a huge area that's been impacted. You know, if you look at something that's had historical leaks, like an underground storage tank or, yeah. you know, uh, an industrial facility, say, um, that might have spread over a very large area, and it could be, you know, infeasible to just immediately dig it up and dispose of the impacted material. But for something like a truck spill, if we're able to get there quickly enough, then oftentimes the fastest and most economical solution is just to dig out the contaminated material and ship it off for disposal. Now, so what about using these vac trucks and that kind of stuff? Are you are you more prone to prefer to dig it out, or do you like the vac truck option? Vac trucks can be helpful. Um, there's kind of two varieties of vac trucks that people don't necessarily realize are too different. There's like your regular old vacuum truck, which has, you know, a hose and a tank and it sucks very hard. Mm -hmm. And there's what's called a hydrovac truck yep. um, where it's a combination. It's like the other truck, but it's also got basically a power washer attached to it. And so those are commonly used if we have to dig around, you know, buried utilities or somewhere sensitive like that. Um, Another reason, another place that those types of things would be useful is a lot of times if a truck crashes, if it doesn't go off the edge of the highway, but it kind of goes into the middle and hits the dividers, um, the spill will often wind up in the catch basins. And most catch basins on the highway connect to storm sewers, and the storm sewers all let out in creeks. And obviously, you don't want a spill going into a creek. So we'll try to find the end of that, and we'll often have a vac truck at each end, and we'll be trying to wash out the catch basin to, uh, you know, remove the contaminants the next time it rains. It doesn't all wash into a nearby water body. Now, it, so I know adjusters sometimes, and when they get the file, they're, they're looking to do it the quickest, easiest way. 
Mm-hmm. But I, I, I've always found that, you know, when you talk to, you know, more senior guys that do these types of claims on a regular basis, they'll say right off the bat, listen, you got to get a good QP out there right away to get that Absolutely. plume looked at and developed. And, you know, cause there's, mm-hmm. you know, you run the risk of it not, and it, it's saturating or getting into the groundwater and getting pulled down and taken to a totally different area. Yeah. That- yeah. No, I- a quick response is very important, and having someone who you know knows what's going on, has the equipment and the analysis capabilities to actually figure out if you've got it all mm-hmm. is, is very important. Um, we've been on a few jobs where we didn't get called out until a few days after the spill, and yeah. you know the initial the initial responders um, maybe didn't have a QP with them, and they dug up what they thought smelled the worst and did whatever they did with it. But by the time we get there. They've already backfilled it, and we take our screening result or our screening sample to try and you know verify that they did a good job, and we're finding contaminated soil still. So even though it's already been excavated and filled in once, it winds up having to be excavated or treated some other way again because the first time they didn't do the job right, now, um, which is obviously not great for the bottom line. No, not at all. Now, are the regulations getting more stringent, or do you find they're getting more loose? What what, what do you find that's going on with regards to those type of contamination spills? The regulations almost never get looser. <laughs> <laughs> I knew that, but I was, just, uh, I, I was just throwing that out there. Just checking, yeah. There is um, some new regulations that have started coming into force um, with regard to what's called excess soil. Okay. Um, so it, it used to be if you had uh, contaminated soil, pretty much your only option was to send it to a landfill. Um, and the ministry and various stakeholders have been coming together and working on these excess soil regulations. And the idea is that if you have a lot of soil you're trying to move, um, you might be able to send it to a site that can actually accept it, even if it's not usable on your site. Um, so, for example, if you're you know, in a residential area, you've got soil that doesn't meet the residential standards, but maybe it meets industrial standards. Oh. Um, the excess soil regulations potentially provide an avenue to be able to send that soil to a site where it can actually be reused rather than being disposed of as waste, which is potentially significantly cheaper um, than, you know, disposing of it as garbage. Now, is this new? Because I've never even heard of this. This has got to be, like, cutting-edge new. Yeah, yeah, no, it, uh, I believe, pretty much January 1st, 2021. Oh, it's um, really new then. Is when it was starting to come into force. Um, some parts of it are still phasing in, um, but, yeah, no, it's it's... It's the new excitement in the industry, I think. Well, um, yeah, because where are you going to put all this soil? <laughs> I mean, there's only so many landfills, right? And so many ones that will take contaminated soils and and at different yeah. levels or whatever's in them, right? Mm-hmm. And there have been a few bad actors in the past who've, you know, maybe disposed of soil in ways that weren't the most responsible. Improperly. So. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So they didn't tag um, it when they sent it to the landfill as being contaminated yeah or you know some farmer thinks he's getting a great deal for you know taking some some quote-unquote fine soil oh wow uh, and getting paid 50 you know 50 dollars a ton for it wow and six months later he finds out that uh maybe it's not the best stuff in the world to grow crops on oh oh interesting um now what do you do in a case like that so you guys would get called into that and then then there's a there's a cleanup from that too, right? 
Yeah, yeah, I mean, I'm not sure if that would be an insurance claim or a civil claim, possibly both. Yeah, absolutely. um, Yeah, no, it's that's a tricky situation. Um, We you'd have to try and I mean, the nice thing about that sort of situation is he probably hasn't spread the stuff around too much. It's likely just in a stockpile. Yeah, it'd be relatively easy to delineate. But if the stuff, if the soil was particularly contaminated, it could have been, you know, it's been sitting there for who knows how long, leaching into the surrounding area and you know spreading the issue. The uh, the really unfortunate thing is the way the regulations are written in Ontario. Um, basically, if the soil's on your property or if the contamination's on your property, it's yours. You doesn't own really it. Matter how, doesn't really matter how it got there. So I do have a question about, and I've I've always wondered this um, road sheen because you know cars are always dropping oil and um, making you know they don't sometimes get cleaned up properly from previous accidents and now you have an accident so you've got old over new or sorry new over old over old over old and and how are you able to delineate that i mean and and then does it have to meet a certain standard because it's the roadway and they put down oils and all sorts of stuff on there to begin with or it's mixed in the asphalt how do you guys deal with Um, that that can be a tricky thing um I mean, roadways are, I believe, generally considered a community property use. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're not the strictest soil standards, but they're also not the most lenient. Um, when people are constructing roadways, you know, obviously they use asphalt, they use various things like that, um, which are chemically fairly distinct from a fuel or an oil. Mm-hmm. Um, another thing you'll see a lot of times around roads is um, very fine uh, black particulate which is little pieces of tire yeah you know everybody's driving on the road and every time they hit the brakes their tires let off a few a few particles of dust but you have enough cars you wind up with a, a bit of a scum around the place so that that we can pick out pretty easily if it's asphalt or you know tire dust whatnot um if hypothetically you know if you had an accident at one corner and they spilled some fuel and no one cleaned it up and it turned out to be a bad corner and you had another accident there later it can be pretty tough to separate that sort of thing. Yeah, I, I mean, and I, I always wonder, like, you, you see a lot of um, cars broken down on the side of the highway and, you know, they've lost rad fluid or whatever it is, right? Or, you mm-hmm. know, something's happened and they just get towed away. <laughs> oh yeah. I don't I don't see a lot of, you know, people putting down kitty litter or, you know, somebody's out there sucking that stuff up in the middle of the night. They just disappear. So then, you know, yeah. this unfortunate mom and pop have a car accident or, you know, or a saddle tank lets go or whatever it is. And now they're mm-hmm. on for all these other things that, you know, could be totally unrelated. But I guess you can, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, everything has its own um, markers, if for lack of a yeah. better word, right? So you can yeah. delineate what was there and what there isn't and bring it back to the standard it should be. The, um, when we're collecting samples uh, for analysis for something like a fuel spill, there are relatively standard parameters that we look for. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess without getting too technical, <laughs> the, the laboratory analysis that's done uh, essentially gives us kind of a picture. Um, it's almost like a graph. Yeah. Um, and you can look at that and there's, if you put the same chemical to the same machine, you'll get the same graph out of it every time, right? So the laboratories will often have kind of a library of 
what these typical images look like for different things. So for gas, for diesel, for this lubricating oil, for that lubricating oil, for asphalt, etc. Um, so it's possible, it's sometimes hard, but it is possible to uh, match what you're seeing at a site to this library of you know known chemicals and say, oh, that's not diesel, that's uh, you know, number five, lubricating oil, for example, something like that. Oh, okay. So, it, and again, for the listeners, I mean, if you're out just dealing with a diesel spill and the lab results come back with something completely different, you can know that it's unrelated to you. Um, yeah, yeah. And what does the ministry say about that? Are, are you still required to clean it up because you're, you've contaminated that area? Or is there, you know, agreements that um, are made sometimes? Or how does that deal with right because you guys have yeah. to sign off on it at the end right that's true yeah um in our experience the ministry is fairly understanding um that you know we're there to deal with this loss and this spill um and you know the adjuster and or us as the consultants aren't like we don't have the budget really to, to remediate the whole countryside especially beside the road because it's kind of a constant source of you know low level uh, impact. Yeah. So a lot of times when we're doing a up job, what we'll try to do is collect the sample fairly far up road and fairly far down road that we're you know very sure haven't been impacted by the spill, so that we can see if you know that area tends to get you know asphalt issues or road dust issues, or if there's just a lot of sheen coming off the road. Um, you know, we can use that to support our report to say, well, we've we've cleaned up all the stuff that's related to the spill and the other issues appear to be pre-existing because they're in areas that are totally unaffected by the spill. Okay. That, that's awesome. I, I love that. Yeah. That's, that's a great answer because I always, you know, I always hazard or, you know, pause and uh, wonder like, are you going to get tagged with all this other unrelated stuff? Right. So that's yeah. great. So um, good to know. And uh, Jester's good to know. Uh, I'm it's telling definitely you. somewhere that a consultant can help you out with trying to explain the, the ins and outs of the particular lab results you're getting. Yeah, absolutely. I, and that's very important. Can we talk about vegetative sheen? Because that's mm-hmm. something I didn't know a lot about. And, uh, you know, you see it as a kid. You wonder, hey, like that's kind of shiny in the ponds. But I, I yeah. had no idea. Vegetation gives off its own sheen. Yep, yep. I mean, the... The sheen that you see, the actual kind of rainbow iridescence effect, is basically the result of two very thin layers of, or one very thin layer of liquid on top of something else, right? Yeah. So when you have oil on the water, the oil prefers to float on the water. It doesn't really mix in, and, but it'll spread out and form a thin layer, and that creates the iridescence. Um, but you'll get similar things from decomposing organic matter. Um, sometimes we'll have jobs where <laughs> it's actually really annoying. We'll have jobs that are uh, in an area that's kind of boggy or peaty. Yeah. And the instruments we use when we're in the field uh, to look at our samples. So the idea is we don't want to spend thousands upon thousands upon thousands of dollars on lab samples if we don't have to. So standard industry practice is you would collect many samples, but then you would screen them. So you'd use an instrument in the field to see which one is likely to be the worst, and then you submit that one for analysis which works great if you're dealing with sand or something and it's impacted with diesel and you can see on your instrument that there's a very high level of volatile organics coming off this sand from the diesel. But if you're in somewhere that's kind of peaty or marshy and there's naturally occurring, uh, you know, decomposition, 
volatile organics, you know, methane gas, for example, right, then that will also show up on our instrument. And the instruments we use in the field just give us a number. They just say there's, you know, 2,000 parts per billion uh, total organic vapors in this sample. So it but can it, make our job a little bit harder. <laughs> but it doesn't tell you what it is. Exactly. Yes. I mean, when we send it into the lab, we can tell from the lab results what for it is sure. because they're, you know, much much finer detail. But it uh, it can make life a little tricky when you're in the field. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I mean, so I, I the number one thing I find with uh, when I talk to adjusters is really costs, engineering mm-hmm. costs. I mean, it's you know, it, it's an expense that everyone's got to incur. But mm-hmm. why are why do you find insurers are really interested in relating to talking, you know, engineers about yeah. costs? I mean, what do you find? Well, I mean, like you said, it's not an insignificant portion of the overall budget. Usually, um, I think for the jobs we do, often ten to twenty percent of the overall remediation winds up going. You have you know, eighty to ninety percent to the contractor, ten to twenty percent to the consultant. Um, and, you know, we get questions like, well, why did you have to do so many samples? Or, you know, why did we have to keep digging over and over and over again? <laughs> um, it's not an exact science, right? Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's extremely hard to tell when you get to a site how bad it's going to be. Um, I mean, you can imagine, so if we're talking about different soil types, right, you've got something like a sand like you'd have in a playground. Yeah. Fuel, oil, water goes right through it. doesn't even slow down. Like a sieve. Um or you can get something like clay, you know, like you'd make pottery out of, and that's almost impervious to oil and water and all these contaminants. So if you're at a site and you've got maybe only a small area, maybe it looks like there's only a square foot of issue, right? But it's because it's all gone down through the soil and spread out. Maybe it hits the water table, and just like you form a sheen on surface water, you know, oil that falls down will spread out across a water table because it floats on that. So it can be very hard to predict how far something's going to go. You know, sometimes something that looks really bad at the surface is actually easy to clean up because you only have to dig down a couple of feet and you're into clean material because it's, you know, very uh, non-porous. You know, it's all clay. Um, Or sometimes something that looks pretty small on the surface turns out to be just a a meandering trail once you get underground and start looking at it. Yeah. Yeah, and I Which, guess it I guess it has a lot to do with timing too, right? Like you said yeah. earlier, um, you know, yeah. if if you Hours don't matter. Yeah. For yeah. sure. And if, does does temperature matter? To a certain extent. Um, it, I mean, if it's in the winter or something and the Well, that's what I mean. Frozen, then yeah. On the one hand, things aren't going to seep into it as well, but on the other hand, it's a lot harder to excavate. <laughs> <laughs> um, the fuel itself does obviously doesn't freeze. Um, at any kind of temperature that we'd experience. <laughs> um, so, but, you know, it, if it's in the winter, it sometimes gets contained a little bit better by the surface soil. Sometimes. Depends on the, the site, again. Yeah, and then you've got the thaw problem, right, in the spring when it yeah. starts to wash away? So another thing that'll happen sometimes is if you have a vehicle accident that results in a spill, maybe, unfortunately, the vehicle catches on fire, and then the fire crews come. And their priority is putting out the fire. It's not containing your spill. So they're going to, you know, throw foam and water on that. And that can also, you know, wash things around a lot further than you'd expect. Yeah, spread it out. Thin it out, Mm -hmm. but spread it out. 
I guess. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's not necessary. You'd have to thin out a fuel spill an awful lot for it to meet environmental standards. No, but I'm what I mean is by uh, yeah, you're, yeah. You're, you're you're it's no longer contained in that small little area. Yeah, it's exactly. spread out, yeah. right? Yeah, Maybe thin it out wasn't the right term, but uh, yeah, yeah. definitely no, splashing it around. Exactly. No, yeah, so that's, that's all tricky. Yeah. Now, do you guys have any, um, what would be like a stressor between yourself and the adjuster that, you you know, you guys come across or, or do you guys, or is it pretty cool and calm all the time? Well, I mean, we obviously try our best, um, but I think, I mean, as with almost any kind of engineering, the, the biggest challenge is usually communication. Uh, Agreed. A lot of times the consultants are, you know, we're, we, we deal with this kind of stuff. A fair bit. We like to think that we're technical experts, but sometimes we get a little bit deep in the, the industry and we forget that, you know, adjusters are maybe not as, uh, they maybe don't have quite as deep a background in things as we do when we start, you know, rattling off chemical parameters, standards, tables. I was about to say, quote tables. Yeah, yeah. Start quoting tables to somebody and their eyes glass over. Table one um, and table four and stuff like that. And your head just starts yeah. spinning, right? And yeah, well, we would have been done a week ago, but it's a table eight site. So the standards <laughs> are extremely low. Yeah. Um, so, you know, that's that's obviously always a challenge, and we try our best to make sure that our uh, our reports are, you know, technically accurate, of course, um, and respectable if they get peer-reviewed or if we have to send them into the ministry, but we also try to make sure that they're, you know, understandable to uh, an adjuster so they actually – appreciate you know what they're paying for and what they're getting we try to give them regular updates and you know we, we understand adjusters are busy and you've got a, a whole lot of cases on your on your plate so we're uh, we're not offended if our go unanswered but we like to try to keep pushing them out just so that you know what's going on yeah and i think educating the adjuster as they go along right like you know yeah. your first oil spill is always um you know an adventure t- yeah and time consuming and you know you hear a lot from the qp you know like maybe in your first ones because you're you're following up as well because you're like what do you mean you have to dig out another 10 tons of soil or whatever yep. it is right and uh and it just seems like exactly. astronomical <laughs> and you send in pictures and there's just a massive gaping hole uh in the <laughs> ground and people are like that used to be like where my trailer was um exactly so the other thing is some of the language that we use is specific to the regulations or specific to the industry. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, for example, you'll almost never find a consultant who's willing to tell you something is clean, right? Because if we say clean, that implies there's nothing at all wrong with the property. And we haven't tested for everything. You know, We've tested for what's related to the spill, and we might say that, you know, in our opinion, the spill has been remediated or these concentrations are within the acceptable limits, but we won't say it's clean, right? And if, if you don't understand where that's coming from, it can come off as sounding a little weaselly. Uh, but it comes from a place of love. <laughs> now, um, do you like adjusters coming to the scene if they can to kind of get a better understanding of what they're seeing, at least come to one scene, or or or, yeah. or is, are they just getting in the way? No, no. I mean, we're, we're always happy to explain what we're doing or what's going on. Um, like I said, a, a lot of consultants, you know, they're in the field because they find it interesting and they spend a lot of time doing it, so... There's uh, probably the best way to make a consultant love you is to be interested in their area of expertise. Yeah. So we're, all, we're always happy to have people show up at site. Um, I mean, we'd probably give you a hard hat and 
make sure you're wearing a safety vest and introduce you to the various, uh, you know, safety procedures and things. For but, sure. Uh, now, yeah, no, we're, we're quite happy to explain what's going on. Now, you guys have been around, like you said, from 2004. Do you have, like, a particular case or scenario where you guys um, dealt with an adjuster and brought, like, a ton of value to the claim side of things? Is there a specific case that you can remember? Or, I mean, um, I like to tell people stories about stuff that are real-life stories. So do you have one that yeah. you can talk about? Yeah, certainly. You, you don't have to say uh, names or anything, just... No, of course not. We, uh, this was largely one of my coworkers doing the field work, but I got a little bit involved in some of the reporting, so I'm familiar with the case. Um, the situation was a commercial building, and they had a loading dock, and sometimes the trucks would park overnight in the loading dock, and so one night, one of these trucks happened to spring a leak in its fuel tank, and no one noticed until the morning. So by the time they noticed, the leak had you know, followed the path of least resistance into the storm sewer. Um, so there was a, you know, evidently there was a, an insurance claim and an emergency response. People came out, and they cleaned it up, and we were able to get the sewer cleaned out, no problem. But the building owner said, well, there's some cracks in the, in the asphalt. You know, is there a possibility that the material has gone through these cracks and is impacting the soil below the uh, parking lot? So, okay, that's that's a fair question. Um, so we talked to the adjuster and we talked about some prices and we settled on doing a borehole investigation program in the parking lot. Uh, basically, boreholes is, how would you say, it's almost like you get kind of like a metal straw and you push it down into the soil so it fills up with soil and then you pull it out and you can get a sample and you know exactly how deep it was and where it was on the property. So we did our investigation and we found that the majority of the property, just fine, but there was one small area that had some exceedances. Uh, again, consultants speak for probably contamination. <laughs> okay. Um, some exceedances that looked like they were probably diesel, so likely related to the spill. And so we said, okay, well, you guys should, you know, excavate this small portion and repave it, and that'll that'll fully address things and you'll be good to go. Which is great, as far as we're concerned. Uh property owner, as is, you know, reasonable, uh, decided to hire their own consultant to make sure they were getting, um, you know, a fair interpretation of things and they were, you know, getting everything looked at that ought to be looked at. And this consultant went out, they did their own sampling, and they said, oh, no, the, the whole parking lot's contaminated. There's contamination in practically every hole we put in. Uh, the whole thing's going to have to get replaced. We thought, wow, that, that's really different from what we found. <laughs> How did we miss that? Yeah. What's, what's going on here? Yeah. So we, we started looking a little bit closely. Um, and, you know, for our boreholes, when we're looking for petroleum, right, oftentimes uh, it'll sink down, it'll wind up near the groundwater table. Uh, so for our samples, we'd taken our samples eh, a few feet to a meter or so below the parking lot. And this other consultant had reasonably said, well, they didn't sample right below the asphalt, right? And if the spill was coming in from above, the worst concentrations would be right below the asphalt. So we should take our samples there. Reasonable. And they got their results back. And again, they had all these exceedances. Okay, so it's, they're sampling pretty high up. Now, a bit of background. When you're looking at a fuel spill, the chemicals that we analyze for, one of the main sets of chemicals we analyze for, are called petroleum hydrocarbons, right? So petroleum, like petroleum sector, gasoline, diesel, that kind of thing. Um, and there's 
many, many, many petroleum hydrocarbons. So for simplicity, the labs group them into fractions. You get your F1 fraction, which is the really light ones, all the way up to your F4 fraction, which is the heavy one. So gasoline might show up in the F1 and F2 fractions. You know, on the light side, diesel might be in the F2 and F3. And something heavier, like a lubricating oil or an asphalt, might show up in the F4. So we were looking at the lab results, and our results, which we thought looked like diesel, were mostly in the F2 to the F3 fractions. And these exceedances that the other consultant was noticing everywhere were almost exclusively in the F4 fraction. They weren't getting any hits in F2 and F3. We thought that's kind of strange. So we looked at uh, the chromatograms, which are these, these pictures that the labs put out of what the things look like. And looking at the chromatograms from their samples and the reference library that the lab had, we found their samples matched almost perfectly to asphalt. So what it turned out had happened is perfectly reasonably they'd, uh, you know, sampled for the standard package, PHC, petroleum hydrocarbons, and they'd found petroleum hydrocarbons, but the ones they'd found were almost certainly asphalt, not diesel. And so we were able to have a call with our insurance adjuster and the property owner and us representing our insurance adjuster and property owners, consultants, and presented what we thought was a pretty compelling case that whilst there might be some contamination, throughout this property, it was likely the result of the driveway or the parking lot being put in and the asphalt rather than the, uh, the fuel spill. And so uh, the last I heard about it, our insurance adjuster did not wind up paying for the parking lot to be replaced. <laughs> so the other lab found that it had been properly asphalted. Basically. Nice. <laughs> nice. Uh, That's got to have saved a ton of money. Yeah, our client was thrilled. Uh, I think it made his day. Yeah, but, I uh, bet. And that <laughs> consultant, man, uh, yikes. That... I mean, they weren't doing anything unreasonable. You know, it made sense to sample higher, and it made sense to sample for what they sampled for. But um, but they read it wrong, it sounds like. Yeah, you know, interpretation can be important. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so let's talk about adjusters, because I think they need to have some conversations with you guys right off the bat, right? Like, yes. let's talk about some topics that you would like to discuss with them um, when they call in. What do you think should be good for your discussions with some adjusters? Like, do you want to have uh, adjusters call in and just do hypotheticals, or do you like to have adjusters call in and talk about specific files? Um, let's, you know, let's talk about that. Yeah, for sure. I mean, like I said, you know, we're we're interesting in our we're interested in our field, and we're always happy to talk about it. So, you know, if someone calls us up and they say, "Hey, you know, hypothetically, if I had this situation or that situation," we're usually pretty happy to give them some general advice or point them to a regulation or a relevant, uh, you know, case study. Um, obviously, if it's for a particular job, someone's calling for advice for that might be more like an actual project. Um, so, you know, depending on the situation, we might. Uh, send them a proposal for a few hours of consulting time if they were asking about it or, you know, if they have something that happens and they want us to go out and look at it, they're, then they're obviously. Just, I was going to say they're just asking for a friend. Yeah, they're yeah. just asking for a friend, yeah. Yeah. Um, certainly, you know, they're welcome to call our main line or email our info section. Um, it can be, like, a, a lot of situations depend on the particulars of a site, so it can be hard to give you know, really detailed or accurate advice um, without, you know, getting a lot of detail about it. 
Um, but if it's a question of, you know, oh, I, mean, I, I got a call once. Um, somebody was removing an underground storage tank. Huh. And they said, we're not sure what to do with this pea gravel that's around the tank. The pea gravel, it's like a coarse stone that's put in, right, to aid in drainage. Yeah. And they said, it's, it's not contaminated. You know, it doesn't smell bad. There's no staining. Tank didn't leak. But we're not sure if we need to get it tested for comparison to the soil standards. And it's like, oh, well, that's easy. Uh, soil standards, generally speaking, apply to things that are, uh, you know, a fine material, about two millimeters in diameter or less. Pea gravel is obviously significantly more than two millimeters. Pea gravel is not soil. Soil standards don't really apply to it. Like that, that's a pretty easy, a pretty easy phone call to take. That's you know? interesting. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Again, that's that's pretty cool. Now let's talk about um, mindset of adjusters because adjusters sometimes, you know, um, especially some of the older ones, they're set in their ways. Um, yeah. Let's talk about something, you know, with an adjuster or a mindset of an adjuster that you wish you could change because, you know, we always want, you know, to change yeah, somebody. Sure. So let's talk about that. <laughs> I think one of the, the challenges that we run into sometimes is that, you know, everybody's concerned with the hourly rate. Yeah. Know, oh, so yeah. This, how come you had this more senior person at a higher hourly rate instead of this more junior person at a lower hourly rate? This company offers a, a higher or a lower hourly rate than this company. So, you know, shouldn't we hire whoever's cheaper? Um, and, I mean, certainly it's good to, to consider the rates. Um, but I think my, my dad always told me, you know, you're unlikely to get more than what you pay for. Um, and especially with something like a spill where, you know, a fast response is super important um, to keep down the overall cost of the project. Sometimes you can wind up in a situation where although somebody's hourly rates are cheaper, you know, if they're, they take a couple more days to get out there or they're not able to get everything done in one night, and they have to open up the road to traffic for rush hour in the morning and then they're not able to finish until the next day. You know, you can wind up with a project that costs more in the long run than if you'd hired someone who had a bit of a higher hourly rate but was uh, able to get it done faster, you know. And I, I think that goes for both consultants and uh, contractors. For sure. And I, w I would agree with you there. I, it, You sometimes bite your nose to spite your face on some yeah. things, right? I, I think that's the saying. But it, in my opinion, it, I don't – as much as a budget's important, getting it done right the first time is important because yeah. um, I would agree with you a hundredfold on that because, you know, you run the risk of literally uh, you're trying to save a hundred bucks here or 50 bucks there and you miss the big picture and then this other bill comes in and it's, you know, because there was a 24-hour delay, now you're into a bigger um, plume, right? Exactly, yeah. Yeah. It's, um, but I think, I think the solution to that, you know, is – Consultants have to be able to talk to adjusters and explain what's going on, try to educate the adjusters so that they understand, you know, what they're spending their money on, what the value they're getting is for the money they're spending. Um, I mean, I, I wouldn't want to just get some, <laughs> you know, some bill out of nowhere uh, for a huge amount of money and not understand. No, what I think, even for. and I think communication is paramount. Yeah. 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 And I know that, you know, when I've, I, with any time I'm hiring any expert, I like to be in touch with them, and I like to go to the scene personally. And but, I I I really like spending time understanding what they've seen 
and have them explain it to me. It may cost me an extra couple hundred dollars on a file, but I've got to be able to explain it myself at some point, two years down the road or whatever. Uh, I think it's important because, you know, it it adds to credibility for yourself as well as the adjuster, right? So the adjuster's got to be able to, the evidence got to stand on its own. That's on it. It doesn't matter what file you're talking about, but you being a person that can actually talk about the evidence itself as the at the adjuster level just adds so much more credence to things, right? It's just mm-hmm. I think that's really important. So I I agree with you. I think communication is is the thing when talking yeah. about files for sure. Yeah, regular updates, lots of photographs. Photographs are great. You know, uh, photo being worth a thousand words and all that. Yeah, very true. Now, how do you go about picking the consultant? Like, what should an adjuster look at when thinking about getting a consultant? I mean, it's good to look at their track record. You know, have they have they worked on projects before? Have they worked with you before? Have they worked with anyone else in your company before? Um, you know, a lot of times a good reference goes a long way to, you know, building confidence and knowing that you're going to be dealing with someone who's looking out for your best interests. Um other than that, I mean, if you're trying somebody new, you know, maybe start them on a small project, see how it goes, ramp up from there. I wouldn't necessarily hire someone you've never worked for, worked with before, for you know, a million dollar claim. Sure. Um, but yeah, I think it's these things take time. You know, you can get references, you can see how long has the company been in business. Um, sometimes, if uh, people are considering something like a vendor of record or a preferred vendor, you know, something like that. Mm-hmm. then it can be worthwhile to uh, talk about, you know, what, what volume of work do you do in a year? You know, how, how what dollar value of projects are you working on? If it's a, you know, a one person shop and they do 50,000 bucks worth of work a year, maybe you don't want them on a $500,000 claim because they're just not going to have the capacity for it. But if they're a, you know, 2000 person international engineering firm and they do millions of dollars of work a year, you might not get the attention you really want for your, $5,000, you know, small claim because someone ran into a tree in their front yard and filled, spilled a bit of antifreeze. Yeah. Now, how big uh, are you guys and where are you located? Let's let's get that out there as well. Yeah, for sure. Uh, our, our entire company is about 50 people or so. Um, between my department and our other insurance response department, I'd say we're probably 10, 12 or so people available for that. Um, so, you know, we... we tend to be able to respond to things in the GTA within a couple of hours. Uh, wow. If it's that's, further afield in quick. Ontario. Yeah, yeah. We've got, we've got, we got a 24 hour phone and some very motivated people. So that's good. <laughs> Basically uh, anytime day or night, you know, if we get a call, it's a question of how fast can we drive there? Not, uh, is someone going to be available? Okay. Well, interesting. Okay. Um, yeah. Now, let's talk about the transportation sector. Uh, can you give us some advice um, or something in the consulting area that would be useful for adjusters to know? Um, one thing we've been kind of talking about with a few of our clients is trying to do a little bit of outreach to their clients. Um, you know, the actual trucking companies, truck drivers, they all have, you know, standard operating procedures, training for what do you do if you get a flat tire? What do you do if the engine overheat. What do you do if, you know, you get pulled over because your, your stickers are out of date. Um, but a lot of times we show up to a, a spill and even if the truck's fine, 
driver's fine, you know, just there was a fender bender or something and it tore open one of the tanks. Um, you know, there's no spill kit on site. They're waiting hours for the, the consultant and the environmental contractor to show up. Um, and things wind up costing more than they might have if, you know, the, the truck drivers had the materials available to, you know, address at least something small um, right at the time. So I think, I think outreach and education, you know, goes a long way. Um, also stuff like reporting spills, you know, if you have a spill and it's over a relatively small volume, then you're obliged to call the ministry of the environment about it. Let them know, um, call the municipality, let them know. Um, and for and adjusters, that, what is that volume? Do you, do you, um, can you say what it is? Yeah, it's typically around about a hundred liters. I want to say, um, it depends on the situation. Uh, but one of the one of the more common numbers is 100 liters, um, or 25, I think, liters in certain other situations. Wow. But basically, if you, if you tear open a fuel tank, you're probably going to want to call the Ministry of the Environment, the Spills Action Center. They got a 24-hour hotline. Yeah. Um, and you know they'll get involved, but they're they're, they're probably going to get involved anyway. So you might as well call them early. They'll be they'll be a lot happier about it. Yeah. Um, and that's I mean that's something that we wind up one of the larger things that we actually take care of as a, a consultant, you know, it's partly we're on site supervising the remediation, but a lot of it is also communicating with the regulatory bodies. Well, that's what to, I was going to uh, ask you. Them. Do you do the report up at the end for spills action, getting that file closed down in the ministry and making sure yep. that they're all on site and everything's signed off and, you yep. know, tickety boo. It's, uh, it's definitely worthwhile when you call the Spills Action Center, what they'll do is they'll assign the case to an environmental officer. Um, and historically, those officers would almost always go out to the site and visit it. With COVID, that hasn't always happened. But usually they'd show up and they'd look around and they'd see what's going on. Um, they typically like it if there's a consultant involved because then they know that there's a, you know, a subject matter expert who's making, things, making sure things are getting done properly. Um, and... It's worth asking that person, you know, get their contact info for sure because you're going to want to follow up with them. But it's worth asking them if they actually want a full formal report or if just an email update is going to suffice. Okay. Um, you know, a, a significant part of the cost that a consultant incurs a lot of the time is preparing a report, you know, doing drawings, tables, explaining everything that happened, especially if something takes court, takes place over the course of multiple days, you know. Mm -hmm. um, it, it's just it's a lot of information to organize. Um, so if you can put together a fairly short email, you know, this happened here. We took these. We did this size of an excavation. We took these samples. Everything came back clean, and the ministry can close their file. A lot of times, the ministry's file is what's motivating, um, you know, the spill remediation. If it's on, because if, if it's on a provincial highway, right? It's not like there's, uh, how would you say, an irate property owner who's <laughs> complaining about the spill. It's sure. The ministry, it's the ministry and the municipality that want to know that things are cleaned up properly. Yeah, and they can be pretty picky, uh, right? They can be. They're, you know, they're they're usually pretty friendly. But if they get the feeling that you're you're giving them the runaround, then they've got a pretty big hammer they can start swinging. Mm -hmm. Well, I think we've learned a lot tonight <laughs> in a short period of time. We're going to have to have you back on for sure, and then trying to hone in on some specifics on the different things that you guys do at Safe Tech. But I do have what I ask my five fast questions of every person that comes on the podcast this year. And it, it's okay. totally unrelated to anything in your industry. It's just five right. things. So the first one is, what's your favorite thing to eat? 
Pizza. Okay. Any specific type of pizza or just pizza in general? Uh, when we order pizza at our house, it's an extra large, one topping, half black olive, half pineapple, because the wife likes one and I like the other. And you vegetarian or vegan? Uh, neither, but one topping, so. Oh, wow. <laughs> a lot of times the, the meats are a, a premium, so they count for two. Oh, get them on a one topping pizza. <laughs> <laughs> Favorite book you've read? Favorite book I've read? Um, I'm, I'm kind of a, a fantasy nerd, so I, I go through a good portion of the section at the library for various fantasy books. But oh, okay. Maybe you'll, you'll have a little mercy on me and not make me out myself too hard. No, that's all good. That's all good. <laughs> favorite beverage, alcohol or non-alcoholic? Which one? It doesn't matter. Just what's your favorite beverage? Uh, chocolate milk. Okay. I'm, uh, I got a sweet tooth. All right. Yep. Favorite movie? Favorite movie? Um, hmm. I, uh, there's a movie that came out a while ago called Red, um, yeah. which actually has some scenes filmed in Toronto, uh, which is, I think, quite good. Uh, Red so, has, um... Uh, uh, the Die Hard guy. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. It has him in it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's got a lot of good actors. Uh, Helen Mirren, I think. Yeah. Um, Bruce Willis. Bruce Willis, yeah, is who I was yeah. thinking. As soon as you said it, I was like, oh, it's Bruce Willis movie. All right, yeah. favorite place to go on vacation? COVID aside. Uh, COVID aside. My parents currently live out in Vancouver, so we try to visit them once or twice a year. All right, and this is an add-on because when I was talking to somebody else on a pod, another podcast, he was talking about his favorite band. And uh, mm-hmm. So what's your favorite band of all time? That's a question. Um, hmm. My parents played a lot of the Beatles, so that's probably the band I've listened to the most. Okay. Yeah. All right. That's good. They're a great band. Um, yeah. All right. Well, Rob, how do people get in touch with you and Safe Tech? How are people going to reach out to you? Give me your contact, be it email, phone number, website. How are people going to get in touch with you guys uh, when they've got a spill or they've got a question or a concern or just they want to find out more about uh, what you guys do? Uh, certainly. Well, we do have a website. Um, if you go to safetechenv.com, which is S-A-F-E-T-E-C-H-E-N-V.com, yeah. uh, you can find out all about us. We got a little my team or our team section. Sorry, it's got uh, photos of everybody in every department, um, and I think you'll probably be able to find our uh, company phone numbers and email there as well. Um, if an adjuster is interested in getting our uh, you know 24-hour emergency line, then they can certainly reach out to us through that, and it'll wind up on my desk and/or uh, some of our project managers, and we'll be in touch. Fantastic. Well, I appreciate your time tonight, and uh, thank you very much for being on the podcast. I hope you enjoyed uh, spending your your last hour with me. <laughs> oh, my pleasure. And uh, and we'll talk to you soon. And uh, thanks again.